I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Capehart. My guest today is a genius, a MacArthur genius, and a literary genius, a two-time winner of the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. Now he's the author of Crook Manifesto, the second installment of his Harlem trilogy and the sequel to his terrific 2021 book, Harlem Shuffle. He is Colson Whitehead. In this encore presentation of a conversation first recorded for Washington Post Live on July 20th, the revered writer talks about why the trilogy set in Harlem is a departure from what he'd written before and how Crook Manifesto still reflects his style of grounding his novels in critiques of how we live and how we treat each other. But the best part comes when I ask Colson Whitehead if there is a period or theme that he hasn't written but would love to dive into. The answer was romance novel. What he's using for research was literally laugh out loud funny. Before we even get into the book, I have to tell you that uh, as a, a political science nerd, I don't read fiction. I read history and I read political books <laughs> until I got to, until someone said, read Underground Railroad. And then next thing I knew, I've got stacks of your books on my bedside table. So um, just my saying that your reaction to, um, you know, pulling me over to the other side, to, to embracing fiction. Well, you know, I, I write uh, different kinds of stories. You know, I have a zombie story, I have historical fiction, uh, and now I'm writing crime fiction. Uh, but apart from there, genre labels you know I'm, I'm pulling in uh critiques of capitalism institutional structures um uh, uh class and so you know they, they start off with a very simple premise and then spin out as i sort of work in uh my various critiques about how we live and how we treat each other actually you know that that is that's how you hooked me because you do there's even though it's fiction it's rooted in in you know facts and truth and history, uh, so thank you for that. Let's talk about Crook Manifesto. Um, it's it's set in the 1960s. Uh, I'm sorry, Harlem Shuffle is set in the 1960s. Uh, Crook Manifesto picks up where in the 70s? Yeah, I mean I'm seeing it as a uh, a trilogy. So uh, following this character Ray Carney. In the 1960s and then 1970s then 1980s and also new york city in those different periods uh a time of, of boom and bust and so um you know when, when all is said and done I'll, I'll have traced you know one character um for 30 years and also the life of a city and how they parallel and reflect each other um so i i, I take it from your answer so the end of the trilogy will be will be the 80s I'm just wondering, why didn't you set it up this way? Um, I started off with, you know, very simply just wanting to try my hand at a heist novel. And then I kept coming up with different adventures for, for Ray Carney. So the first book became three different stories uh, linked together. Um, I kept coming up with more. And so that became a second book in the 1970s with three more stories interlinked. And uh, if you do two, you might as well do three. So it became a trilogy. <laughs> You know, once you've gone, like, what, what's two books? I don't know what that is, but a trilogy. There's a good tradition: Star Wars, uh, Lord of the Rings. Let's go. Let's do a trilogy. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you've mentioned his name several times. I know who Ray Carney is. 
tell the tell the folks who are watching and listening who Ray Carney is. He's a, a fence. A fence is someone who takes stolen goods and then recirculates them into polite legal society. So uh, uh, the heisters, you know, steal two million dollars in gems. They've been shot. They're being pursued by the police. And then they go to the fence to get money for them. And the fence always says, uh, I'll give you 10 cents on the dollar. So um, there's not a lot of fiction or movies about uh, fences and how they work. And they have one foot in uh, legal society and one foot in the crooked world. And, and, and the, the possibilities of that psychology were very, very promising and alluring. And so he became the main character and um, he's the anchor of, of the series. Right, right. And so in Crook Manifesto, you have it broken down in three parts, um, 71, 73, and then 76. Um, why structure the novel around those three specific years? I knew it would be the 70s, so I'm trying to find what moments in New York history can I exploit uh, for, for Ray Carney. Um, if you've seen the movie Serpico, 1971 was uh, a moment where there was a big anti uh, corruption force in New York City, the Knapp Commission. Um, and so that provides the background for the first story. There's a corrupt policeman who pulls in Carney into his adventures. Um, 1976, uh, bicentennial year. If you remember, those of us who were around, uh, the red, white, and blue uh, fervor of that year. And of course, um, we're forced to you know, think about how do we live or not live up to the Declaration of Independence, the principles of the founding of our country? And so there's a moment there for, for, for critique and investigation of what it means to be an American, a Black American in 1976. So um, I'm going through newspaper headlines and trying to figure out what will serve the story. And, um, and, and hopefully, you know, it pays off for, for Carney. Mm-hmm. Um I sort of jumped ahead of myself by asking you to talk about each of those years, but let's go back to 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 um, um, seventy one, which is the start of the book, and talk a little bit more about Ray Carney, because how is he different in Crook Manifesto than he is in Harlem Shuffle? Sure, he he grew up poor. His father was a criminal, and um, that was his model for manhood, and so uh, he wants to have a a uh, upstanding business on 125th Street in Harlem, a furniture store. He wants to be a good family man. Uh, he wants to be a good husband, but there's always a voice in the back of his head saying, let's do some crimes. You know, listen to us, <laughs> Carney, do some crimes. Um, and so at the opening of the second book, he's renounced his, his, his uh, days as a fence. He's gone on a straight and narrow until it's 1971, uh, his teenage daughter wants Jackson 5 tickets. They're on a big world tour. They're coming to New York, uh, playing with the Commodores, who are not really well known at that moment, the opening act. And his daughter wants tickets. It's sold out. So he has to go to this corrupt cop who's a fixer in New York in order to get tickets. And then, of course, there's a high price. And what I love about this genre is that we all know the story of the gangster who wants to go straight, and then they pull him back in. So I, I have fun with that. Uh, Carney has tried to renounce his, his bad ways, but the, but the life is always you know, calling him back. Mm -hmm. And so everyone seems to be in on the, the, the criminality, um, but the way they get to participate in the criminality reflects their, their social status, right? How, how 
do social status, criminality, and corruption collide uh, in the first part of the book? Well, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's all, it's been all over, you know, both books. Uh, there are street level criminals. And then I pull back and meet, um, you know, the corrupt black upper crust in Harlem, uh, crooked lawyers, crooked politicians. And then I pull back to Wall Street and we meet the real estate fat cats, uh, the Wall Street moguls who are engaged in a higher level corruption. So whether you're, the stakes are very low or stakes are in the millions, a lot of the cast is pretty uh, involved in various shenanigans and criminal activities. And we're forced to think, you know, how bad is the guy who uh, breaks into the storefront compared to the, these larger crimes of the, mm -hmm. the rich and powerful? Um, where does everybody fall on this, this scale of corruption? So 1973, uh, where do we find Harlem, Ray, and his, his new partner, his partner in crime, Pepper? Pepper is like a, you know, sort of a Yoda figure, uh, a seasoned <laughs> criminal who was a, a running buddy of, of Ray Carney's father. And he's very taciturn. He's very, you know, semi-sociopathic, um, has a unique perspective on life and, and, and criminality. So I give him his showcase and he's hired to do security for a, a black exploitation film in Harlem. You know, I used to be a pop culture critic. So it was really fun to go back to uh, these movies that I watched when I was a kid, um, Shaft, Superfly, Coffee, and figure out how to make it work as, as a plot. And so uh, the main, the star of the black exploitation film in the book goes missing and Pepper is sort of called in to, um, uh, to look for her. And so there's a, another, another level of critique of Hollywood. Um, one of the characters is a Richard Pryor type character named Roscoe Pope, a, a comedian who's about to blow up. And in the same way that Richard Pryor started in exploitation movies is uh, finding his way in Hollywood. And um, of course we know, if you fast forward 10 years, what happens to Richard Pryor. Um, so it's another way of seeing how people are sort of chewed up and, and spat out whether it's the criminal life, Hollywood life, um, New York politics, another way of looking at uh, a different level of corruption. Um, speaking of Richard Pryor, you talk about those movies it's like, I mean, is one of them Which Way Is Up? Um, the movies he did, the series that, of movies he did with Sidney Poitier. That's a little, little later. Um, you know, he, sort of, he did stuff with uh, Billy Dee Williams, like a movie called Hit. And he's sort of a wise talking, uh, he's not even a star. He's, you know, he's a very uh, low level supporting player, but he's about wow. to blow up. You know, his concert records, 75, 76, silver, the movie Silver Streak. So um, I'm capturing him at a moment when he's finding his genius and also starting to reckon with the, the price of fame. Mm -hmm. um, let's stick to 73 for a moment because I'm wondering, how did you do research for the book? and? As you're doing, as you're writing this and you're researching, did you learn things about Harlem that you didn't already know? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in New York City and lived in Harlem when I was very little, but I, ne I ne never hung out, hung out there as a, as a grown-up. And so I'm really engaged in finding different places in the city that can serve the story. Where does Carney live? Where's his office? You, you know, I was writing during the pandemic, so... I was wearing my mask on the street, the only person out there going around avenue to avenue thinking, I guess you could dump a body here or here's a good <laughs> warehouse to stuff, to stuff a hostage for a couple of days. 
Um, so there's, you know, there's this great history of Harlem that I had to, had to learn and then, you know, figure out how to deploy for my characters. Um, and a lot of, you know, research I could have gone to my parents for. They were a young couple in Harlem in the 60s, raising a family. Um, the first book has the Hotel Teresa, which was a famous st- oh, yeah. uh, hotel where yep. black celebrities lived. Um, and on the first floor was a chalk full of nuts, the old coffee chain. So I wrote these scenes and I would tell my mom, like, oh, yeah, I'm writing about the Hotel Teresa and Chalk Full of Nuts. And she's like, oh, yeah, I was there every day. I worked around the corner. So um, it's also it's also rediscovering my, my parents' uh, Harlem, which is you know pretty neat. Mm-hmm. But I mean, then that gets to the whole conversation about Harlem today and the demographic changes that have hit Harlem um, in particular as a result of gentrification. How much has Harlem changed from what it was in the 60s and 70s? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I describe 125th Street, Carney's Harlem, uh, you know, very vividly and trying to get it right. Um, and all the storefronts don't exist anymore. They've, as in every big boulevard across the world, there's the Nike store, the Shake Shack and the Gap. Um, so it really could be anywhere. But it's also the, a continuity because if you go two blocks up to, to 127, they're the same brownstones and townhouses that were built 140 years ago and they're untouched um, from the outside, you know, inside or apartments. But all that stuff is still there, even when with the corporate takeover. And, you know, before Harlem became Black Harlem, it was a refuge for white Europeans, uh, German, Italian, Jewish. And then they ascended the economic ladder, moved, you know, left New York City, moved to the suburbs. And there's an influx of Black Americans from the South. Um, and then 120 years later now, you know, we're talking about gentrified Harlem, some of those, you know, young kids coming to Harlem now for the cheap rents and the nice cafes are the descendants, you know, the great grandkids of that first immigrant group. And which I find, you know, kind of lovely, you know, that's the, the, uh, the narrative continues with a new generation. Um, and for me, you know, despite all the corporate gentrification, it's kind of lovely. Mm-hmm. It's sort of the perennial New York story. New York is always changing, but the ca- the cast of characters who flow in and out of the city during its history have ancestors who were there before them, whether they know it or not. No, totally. I mean, and I, I you know, I've done some family research, and I was able to find where my mother, my my grandmother, who came from uh, Barbados in the 1920s to Ellis Island, lived in Harlem, and um, I'm putting that address in a you know later part of the book, uh, but it's you know it's it's uh, it's lovely to I think commemorate that in his books and then also discover my own history in doing research. Mm-hmm. So now the the third part of the book is 1976. You touched on this earlier about sort of the complicated relationship between African Americans and America on America's 200th birthday. Um, I'm just wondering, put, put your political analytical hat on and would uh, Crick Manifesto's 1976 chapter or chapters change at all if you were to change it to 2023? Well, there's, a, there's, still, there's still the uh, attempt to sanitize American history. Obviously, 
if we're talking about 1776, we're not talking about slavery and um, uh, the founding fathers, you know, uh, having a lot of owning a lot of people. And if we look at the headlines now um, in Florida, for example, uh, basically banning uh, talking about the reality of slavery um, and the truth of our American history. You know, we shouldn't shy away from it. It's what happened. And we're only going to repeat our mistakes if we don't learn from it. And so 1776 is a big salute to our founding principles. How much are we actually living up to them? And still, you know, uh, in 2023, 2023, we're still engaged in this, you know, um, purposeful looking away. Uh, we don't want to face uh, our real, our true national origin. You know, I, we have an audience question that I was going to ask you later, and it, and it comes from Canada. But given what we're talking about now, um, let me put this up. This is a, a question from Stephen Mora from Canada. And Stephen asks, some classes in my high school in Canada study the Nickel Boys. What would you want students to know about writing stories, either professionally or for the joy of it? And in that, I, I bring this question up now because, you know, I could see how the Nickel Boys or even the Underground Railroad or maybe even any of your books could get caught up in this hysteria over CRT um, and making kids read, white kids feel bad about learning about the nuances and complexities and truths of American history. Yeah, we wouldn't want to make make anyone feel bad. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm uh, delighted that Underground and Nickel Boys have found an audience in, uh, in high schools and, and colleges. Uh, the Underground Railroad has a fantastic element that sort of roves around different moments in our history. And so it's an opportunity to talk about not just slavery, but forced sterilization, eugenics, scientific racism, um, uh, Nazi racial theorists borrowed language and ideas from American scientists to justify the extermination of Jews. And so um, that book becomes a jumping off for a lot of different kinds of conversations, and I'm glad. And I have, but I have gone to schools where they're teaching the, the Nickel Boys, and the teacher who brought me in is like, there was some debate among the school board members, you know, whether or not to teach the Nickel Boys. So I haven't heard about it being banned, but it is um, it's in sedentary. I'm not really sure why. Uh, it's just a story about how America came to be, but it, it, people are very touchy about it. And so um, we go through these phases in American history. Uh, the communists in the 50s are perverting our kids' minds. Um, late 80s, early 90s, the multiculturalists, the politically correct crowd is trying to get rid of Shakespeare. Um, and now we have this anti-CRT hysteria and art's always under attack. And there's that war between progressive values and reactionary values. So it's a really old story. This moment I recognize from 20 years ago when I was in college and from reading about the 1950s. And we come out of it, but we have to be vigilant and we have to fight. You know, it's one thing to be in this period and, and watch these discussions and watch what's being done to authors in their books. And it's another thing to live it, um, for you to you know, hear about people debating about whether your book should be even be taught in schools. And this brings up an, another audience question. This one is from Connecticut. 
from Danielle uh, Teplica or Teplica. I'm sorry, Danielle, for mispronouncing your last name. But she asks, how do you care for your writer's mind? Have you found a balance between keeping up with news and politics and giving your mind other options? Um, I definitely, you know, decompress. Uh, and so I wrote two very serious books back to back, The Underground Railroad and The Nickel Boys. The Nickel Boys was based on a really terrible real life incident about a uh, repressive and abusive uh, boys school in Florida. And I finished it and I was depressed and depleted. And then I played video games and barbecued for two months. And <laughs> that was my self care. And so, um, you know, I mean, um, not all my books are that serious. And there's a lot of humor in Brook Manifesto and, and Harlem Shuffle. And I'm very grateful for that. Um, I get to make weird jokes uh, about Pepper and, and pop culture and New York City politics and being a human being. And so depending on, on the work, there's room for humor and, and or some, sometimes not. It's part of the job. Uh, but I can always kick back and you know watch some TV, have a glass of wine or play some video games. <laughs> and that keeps mm-hmm, me sane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was about to ask what, you know, do you drink? What's your favorite drink of choice? But, you know, the other thing I um, like about your books, um, and particularly Harlem Shuffle and and now Crook Manifesto, is that, you know, you get to tell jokes and you get to tell different kinds of stories, but it is decidedly black. I read, I'm reading the pages and I, I hear my family, I hear my relatives, I see, I see myself, I see some of my friends, and maybe it's because I'm now an old man and I can see these things and it's always been there, but it's something when I'm sitting there um, either, you know, reading in a lawn chair or propped up on a pillow uh, in bed at night and a smile breaks out over my face because you, have, you, you put in a turn of phrase that I've only heard said uh, among my relatives or just among among black folks. Do you hear a lot of that from fans of your writing? Well, yeah, there's, there's that recognition if you do it right. I mean, I think what's great um, about my job is that I get to leave myself and then hopefully, uh, if I can find the right words, take an ind- a very individual story that's in here in my head and then uh, bring it to other people. So I'm really glad when people recognize themselves or their family or New York City, or a certain way of being in the world. Um, you know, that's part of what I strive for, uh, that kind of communication. Um, I'm, I'm looking at, we're running out of time and I've got like four questions to ask you. So um, one more on, on the book, which comes first, the plot or the characters? Uh, the plot or the proposition. So the Underground Railroad, what if it, actually was a literal train beneath the earth. Wouldn't that be weird? And so that's before there's Cora, the Caesar, all the all the characters I bring in there. Just an idea that stays with me. Wouldn't that be interesting? Or the Nickel Boys. This is a terrible tragedy. Um, what would it, what would it have been like uh, to be at this place? And what year? And who are the main characters? So before I have any of the cast, it's um, uh, a notion that I want to explore and then research and, and flesh out. All right, so here, here are um, the, the quick and dirty questions. So last I read, the Nickel Boys is being adapted into, um, into a film 
writers and actors are on strike right now. Can you give us a status update and speak to your involvement in the in the feature adaptation? Yeah, with, with, with that uh, adaptation, I didn't have anything to do with it. I was working on Noble Hot on a Harlem Shuffle and Crook Manifesto. So that's my day job. Um, but they shot it last winter. They're editing it. And I think they're trying to get it ready for festivals in the fall. So mm-hmm. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm, yeah, I'm really excited. My, the first adaptation, Underground Railroad uh, by Barry Jenkins went so, you know, so well. So uh, I'm pretty eager to see how it turned out. And speaking and speaking of that, because that was going to be my be my next question, talk a little bit uh, to us about the process of trusting someone else to adapt your work uh, and then experience seeing it on screen. Well, I felt with Underground, I was ready to give it over, and you know Barry Jenkins was so capable, and all the ideas he had about adapting it were smart. You know, you have to make changes. And all of his solutions are really perfect, but I was not prepared for actually seeing it. Um, it's on, you know, Amazon Prime, and uh, we were still in the pandemic, and we got the tapes, and I was just, you know, just amazed and so honored about this incredibly heist, this incredible heist crew he's assembled, from the set designers, the guy who does the period black haircuts, mm-hmm. um, uh, the cast. Uh, the composers, they really, they spent two and a half years bringing it to life. And, you know, it's one of the most wonderful things that's ever happened to me. It must be an, an, an incredible honor to see your work go from the printed page to, to the screen, however big that screen, <laughs> however big that screen is. Sure. Let me get you, let me get you on AI, um, because there's a, a point of contention in the writer and actor strikes is the use of AI. Um, Comedian Sarah Silverman, the novelist Mona Awad, and Paul Tremblay have sued AI companies, basically saying their work has been used to train or refine their AI models without their permission. How are you thinking about the ascent of AI and how your work might be used in its development? Well, definitely the, the technology is there to capture an actor and then use them you know, forever. You know, you uh, digitize them and you can. Uh, the technology is there to manipulate the image. It's not there with writing yet. You know, if you read um, uh, fiction created by these computers, it's always so terrible. It's like you you spent billions of dollars to create bad creative writing students. You know, was there a shortage? <laughs> um, so I'm not I'm not worried about about my job <laughs> at, the, at the moment. Uh, maybe ten, people are always like, well, ten years from now, it's like, all right, well, ten years from now, I could be ready to retire. But obviously, um, uh, things are pretty terrible at the moment. So I, I hope the, yeah, the, the strike comes through and they get their demands. Mm-hmm. Um, so 5,000 offers and, um, have signed a petition asking tech companies to get consent from and give credit and compensation to writers whose books were used in training, in training data. You are not a signatory. Why not? Actually, I, I hadn't heard about it, frankly. So, <laughs> I'll have to, I'm in my own weird bubble, so I'll, I'll have to get on that. Okay, okay. So the answer to that is he'll follow up. Last question for you, for yeah, you, yeah. Colson. Um, you've explored a variety of themes and topics and periods and places, as we've discussed uh, over the course of your career. Is there a period, place, or topic 
you've had your eye on but haven't had a chance to dive into it yet? I haven't, um, I've, yeah, I've worked in a lot of genres. I haven't uh, worked in a romance, so I have an idea for like a, a romantic story set on the eve of the Russian Revolution. And there are a lot of white people in it. So for research, I'm watching the Golden Girls. Sort of binging. <laughs> Wait, <decades>. what? <laughs> what? Hold on. Just seeing how Blanche and, Blanche and her Wait. crew, you Wait, know, they had to do research. And so. <laughs> We're going over the, how, you can't go say on romance on the eve of the Russian Revolution and Golden Girls is your, I'm what? just trying to get, you know, trying to get into the, you know, white folks' heads by watching some seminal art by them, like the Golden Girls. That makes sense to me. <laughs> oh my God, that is the best. I'm sorry, I interrupted you while you were going on about this ro romance novel. Have you started it yet? <laughs> um, you know, I'll, I'll get to it once I finish the, the, the carny stuff. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What well, this is, and I swear, this is the last question. Um, um, the last in the trilogy trilogy will be in in the 1980s, and so do you already have the the tent poles, the tent pole years for um, that would comprise the story of the third in the trilogy? I do. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I, I have the major moments plotted out, and so I'm writing toward the end. You know, once I figured it was a trilogy, it would behoove me to figure out the last moments of, of Carney's story. So I'm always writing towards that last moment of the, of the last of the last book. So I'm halfway through uh, the first section and, you know, uh, once fall comes and I'm done promoting, I'll get back to work. So I'm pretty excited. Wow. Colson Whitehead, Pulitzer Prize winning author of Crook Manifesto. I'm sorry. Two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Crook Manifesto. Thank you so much for coming to Capehart on Washington Post Live. No, thanks for having me and indulging my, my weird humor. Thanks for listening to Capehart. It's edited by Nick Roberts. We'll have new episodes for you every Thursday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.